0: Hello, my friends. Welcome to our video sermon for this week. For all of those of you watching on our YouTube channel or at paulwhiteministries.com, we greet you. For those of you listening to the audio version of this sermon, we are thankful for you as well. Uh, You listen in on our podcast platforms at paulwhiteministries.com or at deeperdaily.com. we got a bunch of different avenues by which you can access these sermons. And I just want to say that I am so grateful for you. Thank you for joining me today. As you can tell, I'm coming to you from my office here in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Uh, I am preparing this word for our online audience specifically um, because, well, a couple of reasons. The first reason is because we air for you sermons that we preach on the road, on these weekend spots, and I have some coming up, but had a little gap here um, in material. But also, and this is actually the bigger reason, uh, is because on the liturgical calendar, this is Transfiguration Sunday. And while I don't attach myself um, strictly to the liturgical calendar, I have tried in the last several months to start paying more attention to it, to give it credence a little bit, considering that it has bound the church together um, in a unified way as far as the scripture readings from the Psalms or the Gospels or the Epistles for centuries and gives us a unified focus. And while, again, I don't think you have to tightly tether yourself to that, you don't have to make a legalism of it, but since I didn't have something to air on this particular Sunday and I've been paying attention to that calendar... I thought this is the perfect moment to go into one of my favorite stories from the Gospels, the story of Transfiguration. Um, the Feast of Transfiguration, which is honored by certain some uh, cultures in the church world, happens later in the year in August. But Transfiguration Sunday falls here um, at the end of the Sunday after Epiphany and before Ash Wednesday begins. And so I thought it would be a great time to investigate um, and title what I'm calling Jesus Alone, which I think you'll, you know why I call it Jesus Alone. If you're familiar with the story of the transfiguration and, and especially the way I like to present it, which is that Jesus ends up being, and you'll hear me say this more than once today, but Jesus ends up being the only man left on the field. And I find something rather poetic about that, but I also find something rather spiritually relevant about that, in that Jesus is truly the only person left on the field of relevance in regards to our transformation, in regards to heaven, in regard to the the workings and, and operations of the Holy Spirit, in regard to instructions. Why I say things to you like I'm not a disciple of the Apostle Paul, I'm not a disciple of the Bible. I'm a disciple of Jesus. One of the reasons I say that is because Jesus is a left alone. He is the last one standing. And it's not a matter of victory. I don't say it from, boy, I'll tell you, someday it's going to be where Jesus is going to conquer everything. And he's going to put everything under his boot. And he's going to be the only man left standing. I don't look at it in terms of a war. It's I look at it in terms of relevance. There's no relevant voice left In the world than Jesus. He is the mouthpiece of the kingdom of God. I'm not the mouthpiece of the kingdom. You aren't. Your favorite pastor, preacher, or author is not. Uh, We are mouthpieces, but the voice, the one that God speaks through, is of course Jesus. I want to read to you from the Luke version of the Transfiguration story. I say the Luke version because the Mount Transfiguration occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while it does not occur directly in John, um, there's a pretty strong reference to, to it in John 1, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld of his glory, the only begotten of the Father. Well, transfiguration is the beholding of the glory of God in Jesus uh, in a very real way. It's also, and I don't often think of it like this, but we probably should, transfiguration is a miracle. It is a moment of the miraculous we think of miracles like Jesus healing the, the leper or raising Lazarus. We think of the miracle like feeding 5,000 or walking on water. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, by the way, happens just in front of this in the Luke version. But we don't often think of transfiguration as a miracle, and we should, because it is a a uh, it presages the resurrection. It shows us what the resurrection is going to look like and... It gives us the importance of the resurrection. And it does that because of the characters involved in the story. So let's, let's, instead of just talking through it, let's read the text. I want to read from verses 28 through verse 36, and we'll do some work. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And of course, there's our title, Jesus Alone. And they kept silent in those days, told no one any of the things that they had seen. I want to focus you in on the the, the miraculous. I want to focus you in on the voice, the cloud, the things that happened to for the appearance of Moses and Elijah and then the disappearance of Moses and Elijah. Um, but I, I also want to make sure that we understand um, the context into which this happens, and the post text so let 's start with the post text and I do that by taking a look at one of the characters. Peter is one of the three disciples that is on the top of transfiguration. He is one of the disciples who writes about this incident later. Listen to this, I just wanted to throw this in as a way of sort of fleshing out the narrative from Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen to eighteen, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is transfiguration. He received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, "'This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased.'" We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter makes this statement and this argument that he knows by personal experience that Jesus was approved of God pre-resurrection because he saw a post-resurrected version of Jesus prior to the cross. I want you to think about how important that is. It's one thing to see a resurrected Jesus and then make the sort of backward connection to go, well, if he's alive, then the cross is approved. And that means that he was who he said he was. And that's fine. And that's we definitely see the apostles do that. They work backwards from the resurrection. But transfiguration gives you a chance to work forward. It, and Peter does. We know that because of Second Peter 1. It gives them a chance to say, who is this that he shines like the sun, that he's greater than Moses and Elijah, that God would speak from the heavens and call him his beloved son, that he has, we're supposed to listen to him. And then to see the, the the shining light of heaven, to then see it again at resurrection and know that what you were seeing at transfiguration was God putting his seal of approval on Jesus prior to the cross. Before he ever gets to Calvary, it's God showing you what is to come. It also gives us this amazing hope because if transfiguration shows the apostles, shows the disciples, namely, let's just keep it the characters listed, Peter, James, and John, it shows them what the glory of God looks like in the resurrected man, the glorified Jesus. And he's not yet went to the cross, and he's not yet went to the tomb, or had the stone rolled away, or received his quote-unquote glorified body. Yet, he is, in that moment, what he will become. And that gives hope to all of us. It's what makes transfiguration important. It's not simply that we get to see Jesus in a glorified state prior to the cross, It's that we get to see that what he becomes in his resurrection, he already has a part of it in his incarnation, which tells all of us that whatever we are going to become in our resurrection, we already have a part of it in our incarnation. We already have some of what it is we're going to. This is why we call salvation a progression. We, we talk about getting saved. That's, in Christian terms, that's the moment or the series of moments in which we put our faith in Christ and we receive his love and we receive his forgiveness. That's a beautiful thing. Um, I'm a fan of, I'm even a fan of the phrase, got saved, because even though it's been convoluted, into sometimes meaning only hell or only the afterlife. It's a phrase that really means I. that's the moment when I started to walk into the salvation from stuff. Some of it was me. Some of it was chaos. Some of it was the cares of this life. Some of it was the re- repercussions of sin. And yes, some of it is whatever it looks like when I die. But it's not the last of it. It's the beginning of it. It's the it's what I do, as Paul said to the Corinthians, those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. So I have this continuous salvation that's working in me over and over and saving me, yes, from myself, yes, from the powers of hell and the devil, yes, from my sin and my guilt and my condemnation and my shame. But just as my salvation is progressive and progressing, so is my understanding of resurrection and what I'm walking into. And that's why Paul would say, I think in Romans 6, that as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, have been raised into his resurrection, and therefore we walk in a newness of life. We know we're not physically resurrected, and yet we are told that we get to walk in his resurrection. And so transfiguration gives us this hope that what we're going to, we get to taste it along the way. We get to partake of it along the way. And it's why a revelation of Christ in us, the hope of glory is so vital and so important. Now, that's really the the fullness um, of, well, it's as full as I can do, I suppose. It's the fullness of what transfiguration is trying to say to us in a spiritual sense. But there's a lot more going on here. Contextually, I wanted to to take a look at, I already told you that the feeding of the 5,000 precedes this story. Not directly, but it is in the same chapter, um, which is preceded by Herod's perplexity of who this Jesus is, because he's already cut John the Baptist's head off. And so he's like, well, who's this guy? Which, after the feeding of the 5,000, prompts Jesus. Remember, the sequence of events is Herod beheads John, Jesus hears about it and goes apart to be by himself, to mourn, to pray. And when he's there, a crowd rushes out to meet him and he's moved with compassion and he feeds them the fishes and the bread. And he hasn't had time to process really the death of John yet. And we get word that Herod's already concerned that he didn't really kill John. He cut his head off, but he didn't really kill him because who's this guy? that I'm hearing about. Is this John? So Jesus turns the question on his disciples in Luke chapter nine, same chapter as transfiguration, just pre go back about 10 verses in front of the transfiguration story. And you have Jesus doing this in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, one of the ancient prophets has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Now I want you to notice that the response of the disciples isn't who they think Jesus is, it's the who the crowds think Jesus is, because that's what Jesus asked. Who do the crowds think I am? What's the buzz? What's the word on the street? When you guys hear people talking about me, who do they think I am? And the disciples come up with really three answers. They go, well, you're either John the Baptist come back from the dead. By the way, John the Baptist hasn't been dead long. Or you're Elijah. And in the Israel mentality, Elijah was the picture of someone who maybe never even died. Because in their story, he was taken up in a chariot of fire. And so if he was taken up in a chariot of fire, their Malachi prophecy said he had to come back in the day of the Lord. And I've talked to you and taught this to you before, that Jesus actually taught that Elijah did come back in the form of John the Baptist. Um, Jesus is trying to show you he didn't literally have to come back. He came back in the form of another man. But the the Jewish mentality is that Elijah could come back. It's like, okay, well, maybe he's Elijah. They said, oh, or he's one of the prophets risen from the dead. So you're so much like something above them that they assume maybe you're Jeremiah, maybe you're Isaiah, maybe you're whomever. And then Jesus gives them that statement about uh, that he's going to die. Uh, he's going to be raised again on the third day. That if they want to follow him, they've got to pick up their cross. In other words, I'm going to die, but if you want to follow me, you're going to run the risk of dying as well. And then takes Peter, James, and John to the top of that mountain to transfigure in front of them. And then not coincidentally, and I gave you all that context for this reason, not coincidentally, having just been compared to John the Baptist and Elijah, Moses and Elijah appear on top of the mountain with Jesus. Now, you might be saying, well, what's Moses got to do with John the Baptist? Well, there's an important connection, I think, that is made with John the Baptist and Elijah. For sure, we just made it. But I think in terms of his earthly ministry, there's also a connection you can make with John the Baptist and Moses. Because Moses is the bringer of the law. John would say, Uh, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, in his gospel would say that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. And so Moses is considered the lawgiver. Jesus is considered the grace bringer. And so when you see someone pushing and promoting the law, you're seeing a Moses-like character. John the Baptist wears many hats He's the priest, He, he uh, the forerunner to Jesus, the greatest prophet in, uh, under Moses, uh, or the greatest prophet ever, Jesus says, um, but yet the least in the kingdom are greater than, than John. Um, he wears the hat of Elijah for sure, so that Jesus can wear the hat of Elisha, but he also wears the hat of Moses in some ways, because Moses brings the law, so does John the Baptist, and and I was talking to someone recently said if you want to see the greatest contrast between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus or to put a fine point on it you want to see the greatest contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in action look at how John the Baptist treated the adulterer and look at how Jesus treated the adulterer John the Baptist confronted Herod about uh, or Philip, about marrying his wife, his, or marrying his wife, uh, about, about, about uh, cheating, adultery. And it cost him, he went to prison, and it ultimately cost him his head. Um, having confronted adultery using the law, contrasted it to Jesus, who sees the adulterous woman in John 8, does not lean into the Mosaic law. Instead, doodles in the sand, he without sin among you cast the first stone. Woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. John the Baptist is confronted with adultery and hammers down on it. Jesus is confronted with adultery and forgives it. You want to see the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Just watch John the Baptist and Jesus deal with adultery. And so John the Baptist comes at it from a Moses mentality. Jesus comes at it from a new covenant mentality. John comes at it from a bring the law. Jesus comes at it from bring grace. I know it's not a perfect illustration, but it works. And it shows you the contrast. It also shows you that John the Baptist has to get his head cut off for Jesus' ministry to really accelerate. John even said, I must decrease, he must increase. As John is removed, Jesus' ministry comes to the forefront. In fact, as John is removed, Jesus feeds the 5,000, walks up to the top of transfiguration, and the glory of God shines through him. The ministry of Christ explodes, for lack of a better word, when John the Baptist is moved out of the way. Once the law is repealed, pulled back, grace floods into that vacuum, Christ can go to work. I bring all this up because at the top of the mountain is Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are uh, representatives of other things. Moses is the bringer of the law. Elijah, in the Jewish mentality, is the is the great prophet. He's the fire bringing prophet of the Old Testament. But they're both sort of the bringers of fire. Um, Moses oversaw. So much in the wilderness, and and even so much death at the hands of the law. Elijah, who called down fire from heaven at one point on men, um, because they were coming to see him, and he didn't want to see them. <laughs> he misused and abused his power. So Elijah used his power to harm. Um, John the Baptist had used the law to condemn. Jesus is compared to both of these guys in Luke 9. He goes, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah. Jesus goes, well, who do you think that I am? Well, they knew he wasn't John the Baptist. They had met John the Baptist, and they knew Jesus prior to John the Baptist. And they're learning he's not Elijah. If they didn't, if they don't know it, they will. Hey, you want us to call down fire on these like Elijah? Jesus goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. Son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives. he come to save them. So Peter's answer is, well, you're you're the Messiah, you're Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the one. Then it's not enough to have said it, he wants to show them. So they go to the top of the mountain and there's Moses and there's Elijah. There's Elijah whom people think Jesus might be and there's Moses who's characterized by John the Baptist in so many ways, the, the law bringer. And they see it. The context behind us then shows that God wants to combat the thought process of the crowd that thinks Jesus is someone on par with the John the Baptists and the Moseses and the Elijahs and the other prophets of the Old Testament. He's like them. Transfiguration is to show you he's not like them. They aren't equal to him. They are inferior. He is superior. He is Jesus. But it is not enough to simply see him as superior. He wants to be heard as superior. That's what the father is doing. Listen to the voice in verse 35 from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Now the reason the voice appears is because if you'll notice, the text tells us in verse 33, that as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, master, it's good for us to be here. In other words, Moses and Elijah were already starting to disappear. Peter sees them disappearing and interjects and says, oh, we, if we built little houses, could they stay? And then a cloud drops and God speaks from the cloud. And so Moses and Elijah were just simply going to fade into oblivion. Jesus was going to be left with the disciples. But once the disciples saw that they were fading and realized, oh no, we need to keep them here, God intervenes and, and they completely vanish. A cloud overshadows them and God speaks and says, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Jesus is the one I want you to listen to. Ignore Moses. Ignore Elijah. They are not on par with Jesus. Listen to him. My question is, how did we miss this? Jesus is what we should be teaching. Jesus is who we should be preaching about. We have shoved every other idea and doctrine and ideology and thought into our sermons and our songs. And I know we talk, we got to talk about theology and we got to talk about doctrine. And I know there's stuff to say, and I know that there's things we have to accent and bring out. I'm not denying that, but why is Jesus peripheral? Why is Jesus so difficult to find? He's the voice. He's what we ought to be listening to. He is, He's the plumb line for our Christianity. No one else. Jesus. This is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. So when Jesus says, You've heard it said, but I say unto you, it's Jesus saying, You think one thing, you're pretty confident about it, but you're wrong. And you might even have a chapter and a verse in front of it, but you're wrong. You've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm the voice. Listen, we should be so consumed with this Jesus that it's what people leave our services thinking about is Jesus, who he is, his loveliness, his beauty. We've got to stop trying to share the platform with him. We've got to stop trying to share space with him. It's his. It's all about him. Verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Well, I project, let's do this again. Let's make Jesus be alone. Let's take the other stuff off the field. It's already irrelevant. None of it will save you. I'm not saying there's not valuable things people say or that we can't learn from other things. Of course, but they're not our Redeemer. They're not our Savior. We aren't disciples of them. It's Jesus left alone on the field. Jesus overall and not just some head knowledge of Jesus book knowledge the 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 search for the historical Jesus I'm talking about a revelation of a glorified Christ notice they got to see the glory of God in Jesus and when they saw it God said this is the only one that matters I'm talking about a revelation of a good God framed in Jesus He's what God looks like. He's what God sounds like. He's what God loves like. May he be the only one left on the field. So untethered Jesus from men, untethered Jesus from churches and ministry, they complement him. They are not him. And if we focus ourselves on churches and ministries, myself included, you will convolute the beauty of the Savior to where it looks like he looks like and sounds like a certain church or a certain doctrine or a certain preacher or a certain teacher or an uncertain one. We have to untether Jesus from nations and politics and theory and flags and languages and skin tone. We have to untether Jesus from ideologies, ideas, thoughts, He is higher than us. He is broader than us, not only in his holiness, not only in his purity, but in his mercy and in his love and in his grace. Well, I started by really laying out the case of what the Transfiguration story means for us spiritually. But I want to make another connection that's easy to miss because if you don't pull enough context, sometimes. It's easy to miss the finer points. And I don't want to over-tweak the story. I think it I think it lays itself out beautifully. It does all the work for you. But right before transfiguration, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and that he's going to raise on the third day, and that if they want to follow him, they got to take up their cross. The cross was not some pretty little piece of jewelry you hung around your neck or placed on the wall at your house. The cross was a Roman form of execution, the best execution form they had ever come up with. Um, I don't need to go through the physicality of it. You know it's terrible. You know it's rough. A man essentially suffocated slowly. And if you're going to die at the hands of the Romans in the first century, you're going to die on a cross. When Jesus says to his disciples he's going to die and raise on the third day and that they need to take up their cross, he's telling them, I'm going to die on a cross. This isn't going to be some accidental death. I'm going to fall off a cart and break my neck or get stoned in the temple. I am going to die on a cross. I'm going to be killed as a criminal because criminals died on crosses. So it was a scary moment when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He was inviting them to participate in his death. He was inviting them daily to realize that this might cost them their lives, that they were putting it all on the line. When he gets to the top of transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear and he begins to speak to them, the Bible says in verse 31, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But the word departure is the Greek word exodus. I hope you realize that the, the book of Exodus in your Bible was not called Exodus in the Torah. Exodus is a Greek word for the Hebrew word, which means to depart. I think the old King James right here says they were speaking of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that's a great way to say it because he's going to go die. But notice that it is his exodus. Because you don't come out of where you are without dying. This is why when we met Christ, we died with him. We died to the old man so that we could resurrect to the new man. Then transfiguration shows us the Jesus who is about to die. It shows us what he really is on the inside that will not be fully revealed until he dies. Then when he dies, his exodus happens, he departs out of one realm and into the other. But transfiguration shows you what it looks like. So in terms of my salvation and your salvation, we die, we die to the old us and we start to get glimpses of the new us. We start to see the glory of God showing up in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no semblance of the old us left. I think one of the great disservices that was done to a lot of us was this idea that you are all bad, you are horrific, and you deserve to die. And when you get saved, the old you died. There's nothing left that's good because it was all trash. Well, pitch that message to a six-year-old. Hey, little Johnny, you're really just all trash, all right? You, you, uh, your hopes and dreams are all tainted by sin. You're garbage. You deserve to go to hell, and you won't be anything until you meet Jesus. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that to your kid. You wouldn't say that to your grandkid. You'd have a lot of nerve to say that to a kid you don't know. Okay, so let's dispense with that. God loves humanity. He doesn't look at them and go, Oh boy, I could love them, but they're trash. So I'm going to save them so that I can love them. No, he looks at us and he loves us with all of our warts and our failures and our problems. We're not all trash. And here's how I know this. Well, obviously we're not because man does some good even without knowing Christ. And how would that be possible out of trash? But I also know it because we are in a process of transformation. We are not in a process of eradication. God is not eradicating us. He is transforming us. He is separating the wheat from the chaff, which means we've got some wheat, but we've got some chaff. We've got some areas that need burned out we got some areas that are dying and that died and that will die. But we got some areas of goodness, and we've certainly got personality, talent, gifts, emotions that don't die when we meet Jesus. They just get transformed. And parts of them make it through that process because that's part of our beauty. You don't lose your individuality when you get saved. Your process of salvation saves everything, but you, you don't cease to be. There's a part of you that does. Yes. A part of us dies in him and we are transforming into his image, but we're not being eradicated, wiped out. And, and, and here's another reason we know this. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, and this will be my landing text today, and and many of you know where we're going here. But in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, All of us with an unveiled face, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Notice it's the Holy Spirit that's transforming me. The word used there for transformed is the same word used in Luke and Matthew and Mark as transfigured. Jesus was transfigured. We are being transfigured. Jesus was transformed. Boom, they saw it. They saw his potential meet his present. You and I are being transformed. Our potential showing up in the present. But what is still in us is parts of what we were because when the caterpillar transforms, literally the word metamorphosizes, which by the way, the word used for transfigure and transform in the Greek is metamorpho, which is the basis of the word metamorphosis. It is when something changes, not into a totally different thing, but when it becomes what it was born to become, it sheds off what it doesn't need, it retains what it needs, and it becomes what it's never been on the outside, but has always been on the inside. Thus, we're transforming, shedding off what we don't need to be what we could be. Because it's always who we were on the inside, and we bring over with us some qualities of what we were before. For instance, when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, the qualities of a butterfly were always inside the caterpillar, but all you saw was caterpillar. Then, when it goes into its cocoon, which becomes its chrysalis, it sheds off what it doesn't need, and it becomes this whole new thing. If you saw a caterpillar, on the left hand and a butterfly on the right hand, you wouldn't assume that the left became the right, but it did. And they've done studies to show that butterflies retain certain memories, certain uh, sensory perception, like olfactory memories that they had as caterpillars. Here, Here was one test that fascinated me, that they... They conditioned caterpillars to be repelled by a certain smell. And then, after the chrysalis, when the butterfly came out, that breed of butterfly was repelled by the smell that they had learned as a caterpillar. The other butterflies were not repelled by the smell, only those who had been conditioned as a caterpillar. What's that tell you? It tells you that through the process of metamorphosis, when the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it does retain some qualities of where it was. This whole idea of we're all bad, everything's got to go. He sees you and he's passionate about you and he puts stuff in you. Transformation brings to the surface the qualities of heaven that god has planted in you that he's transforming you into and it gets we get rid of the things we don't need but he highlights and brings through the things that we do need so stop with the all I, the i'm all bad stuff realize that he removes what's bad and he transforms us transfiguration sunday is a chance for us to accent jesus alone No one left on the field. Listen to the voice of Christ. He hath spoken in times past through the prophets. He hath in these last days, Hebrews 1 says, spoken unto us by his son. But Transfiguration Sunday also doesn't just cause us to look at Jesus as the only one on the field or the only voice left to hear. It also causes us to hope. To hope that the process of transformation is not finished. That I am more than I look like. That I am worthy of it. That God has not finished working on me. That the glory that is to come, whatever that looks like, can be tasted now. It can't be walked in in its fullness now, but it can be tasted now. And we can pray every day to hear only the voice of Jesus that transforms us. To look into the mirror as we behold his face. We are transformed into his image. But we can't behold other faces, just Jesus. God, bring us back to the gospel where it's just Jesus. Only Jesus left on the field. Only the voice of Jesus who speaks the relevance into our lives. Others will speak. There's many voices gone out into the world. Some of them will rebuke. Some of them will ignore. Some of them will pay attention to. None of them we will follow. Only Jesus. A lot of faces will go in front of us. Some of them will become our friends. Some of them will have to learn to love because they are our enemies. And some of them will be strangers like two ships passing in the night. But none of them will be the one left on the field of our vision. Only Jesus. And when we get there, transformation is possible. Because we become what it is he is destined for us to become. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for helping me to articulate it in a way that I hope leaves Jesus alone on the field. May we move to the sidelines as Jesus comes to stage center. As the the glory is placed on his voice and on his presence, may everything else fade away. And as we get to that place, may we begin to realize the true process of transformation. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for watching. Thank you for listening today. And I want to encourage you to visit paulwhiteministries.com where we have an enormous amount of free material. We put two videos up a week. If you like audio only, you can find us at wherever you find your podcasts. Just search Paul White Ministries. Or you can also access all of our audio material at paulwhiteministries.com or our audio only site, deeperdaily.com. You can access two full-length sermons every week. We put up a midweek Bible study. We put up a full sermon just like this every Sunday. And I also host a podcast every day called the Deeper Daily Podcast. We walk through the Bible. If you've never listened to that, I encourage you. That's free. It's seven, eight minutes every day. It just walks you through something in the Word that I think will be an encouragement and a help to you. Um, If you can help us in this journey along the way, we appreciate it. I'm going to put our address on the screen if you prefer to mail. Uh, Also put our cash app sign up there if you'd like as well. You can can also find us at PayPal, Paul White Ministries, or you can give using credit card at paulwhiteministries.com. Whether we hear from you as far as giving or not, what we really love to do is just get an email once in a while telling us that this has been a blessing to you. We love that. And so info at paulwhiteministries.com. We'd love to hear from you if this has been impactful in your life. We are praying the very best of the favors of God into your life as you transform into his image. Until next time, God bless.